What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, what are you doing? I'm enjoying a delicious treat from Bright's Bites. The dog training treats? The same. I've heard that Bright's Bites are not just healthy and nutritious for dogs, but they're so delicious, they're actually a very motivational form of training. They are indeed. We've tested and tried them on site, and they work just great. Well, how did you get a hold of those? Did you purchase them off of a website? I went to dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. That's where people should go to get themselves some Bright's Bites, healthy, nutritious, but also highly motivational dog training treats. Get them in your dog, y'all. Hey, Glenn. Yes. I figured out why Jason has a website. Why is that? It's not exactly the easiest bloke to talk to. Well, let's try that. Hello. Can I speak to uh, Jason Buffhead Furman, please? Uh, what are you doing, you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. That's the kind of treatment you'll get if you actually dial Jason from Mindrick Dog Clip. So, what you need to do if you want any leashes, tugs, harnesses, balls, reward toys, canine fitness and conditioning equipment, Herm Springer things, anything like that, head to Einswick. Dogquip.com. That's E I N Z W E C K.com because you do That's not want to have to special. talk to this guy. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And in her own living room, <laughs> again, <laughs> we have our very special guest, Narelle Cook, to hear and talk about canine health and nutrition and stuff. And stuff, yep. Hi, guys. Good to be back. This is episode number four. Yeah. For me now. For so. you, yeah. Well, you've done two on the main channel and you've done one in Patreon. So this is, uh, so it's technically three, but... Let's not um, go through all that again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just like to do it just to fuck with people's head. But before we kick off with what you're going to talk about, you've been successfully authoring a few manuals at the moment. Tell yes. us about that. So people may have seen them posted on the Canine Paradigm through Glenn's site, through my site. So I've got three guides available at the moment. And they've been vastly successful, which has been a welcome surprise. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I I believe in your work anyway. Like I'm not trying to make it sound funny, but I don't think a lot of other people know the amount of work that you actually put into what you're doing. Like because I live with you full time and I'm seeing how much, you know, you sit up and study and how agonized you are about getting the formulation right. And which is what I explain to people quite extensively is that you don't just throw information out there just so you can put a book together. Like it's a manuscript that you have put heart and soul into. Well, it was based on what people wanted, like, you know, what people were approaching me for, the sort of information they wanted. And so there's one on raw feeding for puppies, one on raw feeding for adults and just how diet affects your dog's behavior. And I'm getting really good feedback on all of them. So What's the main good. thing, isn't it? It is. Mm. Yeah. Have you had lots of people that have then noticed significant changes in their dog? Like have, you know, got it, 
implemented it and then say, hey, this is what I've noticed, like that follow-on? I haven't had that follow-on, so I'd love to hear that from people if they have noticed some great changes. I mean, Glenn and I, we've commented, I think, way back in the first or second podcast that when we changed our Frenchies to raw food feeding. The difference. Oh, the difference in Opie particular because he's a bit special. Yeah, he's, was he's amazing. a potato, but it, un- it sort of unpotatoed him slightly. <laughs> But it's funny, you know, it's interesting topic overall because Narelle, I mean, she's got a very strong privacy ethic with her clients that she sees in when she's treating humans. Mm -hmm. Like she won't discuss with me who it is she's seeing and what she's seeing. But one thing that she does tell me, which is a frustration, is that when people do follow her advice and they do take on board what she's asking them to do or suggesting that they do, the diet that they follow and the restrictions that they start putting in place – she says people come back to her and start saying amazing results, you know, like changed my life, doing all this and that. However, the people that don't do it, like keep eating the the same foods, ignoring what she's saying, keep drinking Coke and doing all that sort of stuff, well, they're never going to see a change. Mm. And it's a discipline, I guess, that you have to put yourself through. And then you've got like people out there who say, which is just an interesting thing to me, they go, oh, surprise, surprise, if you give up Coke and go on a diet, you're going to feel better. But you know, it's not just that. There are other satellites or little catalysts out there that cause the problem anyway. But Narelle will go through a range of things of an eating program and diet with them. But, you know, I guess it's up to you to follow through with the discipline. And I think on that, this is sort of before we start on what we're going to talk about. Mm. I think that a lot of people don't know how good you can feel. Mm. Uh, and even, That's a good point. So, so people are just like chronically unwell and don't understand that you can feel so much better than this. Um, yeah. I have a, a fairly minor gluten intolerance, right? Like I pro- like fifty percent of people. It does I'm not a celiac, but I perform better without it. So I, I minimize how much I eat it. But when I did cut it out completely for three months, mm. because the improvement was subtle and slow, I didn't realize how much better I was until I ate some. Right? And yep. then I was like, ah, I'm dying. And then actually I made the choice myself to include small amounts of it in my diet because I don't always control what I'm going to eat. And mm. so I didn't want to get caught like that, like so that I, I guess keep a mild level of tolerance. Now, I don't know if that actually works or whatever, but I, it certainly works for me. But that concept, I've got a flyer for my business and I've actually got the quote, you know, most people have no idea how good their bodies are designed to feel. Yeah. It is just phenomenal. And yeah. yeah. And I think I have been weapon fit, right? Like I remember when I did my special forces medical, like before I started selection, my resting heart rate was 42, right? Oh. Like I was, I was a machine and I have been fat, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you, like being fit is, although it feels good, it's hard work. Mm. And like, if you were to ask me, like being fit feels good, but being fat is more fun. And <laughs> like, it's just the truth, right? So I'm really sympathetic to those causes. Being a massive fluctuator myself, I've been, like I say, you people see me and they go, oh man, you've lost heaps of weight. And I'm like, compared to what? Like mm. <laughs> compared to when? What 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 stage in my life? Or they look at me and go, oh dude, you look terrible. And I'm like, yeah. Like, yeah, it's an old divinal song. It's a fine line between pleasure and pain. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I get it. And what's interesting, I always try to, like we are a dog podcast, but your dog doesn't have a mechanism to tell you about this stuff, right? Like there is no way other than his behavior that's observable to you. Mm. There is no way to say like, hey, that food's not agreeing with me or like I feel like I'm at about 80%. I'm not functioning on all, all six cylinders or whatever, right? Like I'm only at, at 80%. And we don't like, I can explain that to you. I've got a band aware on my arm that tells me exactly what capacity I'm ready to function at. 
but your dog doesn't have that mechanism. I know. And that's the challenge dealing with dogs, health and nutrition, because they can't tell me Mm. what's going on. And even today, like for the last couple of days, all of our dogs have been just manic about eating grass, like really ripping it out of the ground. Like it's the first thing they do when they go in the backyard. And so I'm sort of now like, what have I been feeding for the last few days? Like what's Mm -hmm. changed for all of them that that behavior is now present for all of them because they're not normally like manic grass eaters. Yeah. Do you think, is there possibly like climate? Yeah, grass tastes good at the moment. Like is it possible that it's like a a pollination type thing? Because I've observed that in my dog in the last couple of weeks as well. Okay, that's interesting because I was just observing the lawn today going how beautiful and lush and green. Yeah, it's a a spring grass. Yeah. So And uh, and I mean, Roddy's are intrinsically, they're grazers. Like they go out and like they look like- cows. They look like cows. (laughs) They literally look like cows. And they perform like cows. I've never never not had, how do you say? (laughs) I've never not had a Rottweiler that, or a group of Rottweilers that don't go out and graze together. Yeah. Yeah. And they do. They look like cows or ponies out on the- Yeah. I like to think of them as- as Broncos. But. <laughs> Look, I don't mind the dogs eating grass because um, our grass isn't contaminated with anything, but it's, you know, back to practical matters. It's when it comes out the other end and it doesn't yeah, come yeah. out fully or, you know, you end up with grass piles and yeah. grass piles protruding grass mm. out of their backside. Yeah, so, that's, that's always fun. And you got to glove up and <laughs> pull it out. Mm. And there's yeah. that awkward talk you have to have with the dog about, okay, this is for your good. You have yeah. to stay still. This so, is when I'm glad I can lock my dog into behaviours. You have to... <laughs> forcibly remove a grass from the asshole. Sorry, I know we're we're holding you up a bit, but uh, I just wanted to jump back in time for that comment you made because Panos put something up today. Mm. Our little friend Panos, sleeping Panucci. boy, Panucci and Agnostu, he put up something that says, no man has the right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. It is a shame for a man to grow old without seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable. Yeah. It made me think about what you just oh, said wow. before. Yeah, it's very good. It's a, mm. I think it's by Socrates but it's quite profound. I, I read it today, early today, and it's been resonating around in my mind. Mm. Mm. He's a yeah. smart little guy, Panos. I like him. Just you know he's got his own podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's yeah. invited us on his show too. He's got video set up, which we don't have. It makes us look like fucking chumps. I know. <laughs> Do you really know. want video? <laughs> well, well it might be a motivator to stay on the healthy side instead of sitting on this couch yeah. flopped out all over the place. People, If people could see us. But, <laughs> look, just before we move off what we're talking about if um you know it's common sense and people you know being fit does take a lot of work being Mm. healthy takes a lot of work being fat is enjoyable so with clients i will ask them to to prioritize you know what do you what will you not give up Mm. if you want to keep that then these are the other things that need to go so it's not about depriving someone of all pleasure in life but um yeah making them think about what's most important and working from there i know you've got to find it's so individual like mm-hmm. for me, I know it's being strict. Like I just go, okay, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And I have no problem sticking to that. It's when I say, oh, I'm just going to eat a bit better. Well, if yesterday I ate a whole block of chocolate and tomorrow I leave one piece, I am eating better, mm. right? So, <laughs> like that's not mm. good enough for me, like really rigid guidelines, but other people can't handle that. Like oh, I'm mm. totally aware of that. So it's very yeah. individual. Anyway, moving okay, on. Okay, let's move on to dog stuff. Um, so for this first, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, Birdie, if you're listening, just shut your ears. Um, <laughs> How dare you, ma'am? Because I've got a new girl crush. Oh, 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 oh yes. Oh, yeah. oh, I know who you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I listened to your podcast with Kasara Andre. Mm-hmm. Doctor. 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 Andre. How dare you, ma'am? 
<laughs> Sorry, Dr. Kasara Andre. Yep. And that was phenomenal. Like that was such a good podcast. Yeah, I got um, a lot of feedback on that one. So I really enjoyed it because as a naturopath, I don't have access to THC or CBD. I personally don't have any pain states that I would need to source that for myself. So mm-hmm. it's not an area that I've ever looked into or researched or know a lot about. So her podcast was so informative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wish that I was in the room with the three of you or mm-hmm. the four of you because John was there. John. But that was amazing. So even though I don't have access to CBD and THC, I thought I would just sort of touch on a bit of what Kasara was talking about. Or do I have to say Dr. Kasara? No, you can say Kasara. That's um, all right. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure she'll forgive you. We know she's a doctor. Yeah. But then move on to what – and, you know, a lot of people struggle. Like people might want to use CBD in their dogs but can't mm-hmm. access it or are too afraid to try and source it mm-hmm. for themselves. But I want to talk about an option that is available in Australia – to people and dogs that they can get hold of. And as a naturopath, I can purchase and prescribe very safely. Mm -hmm. Now, because CBD, THC is not my area, please, if I butcher anything, Kasara, contact me. (laughs) So, or Pat, you know, jump in. Pat seems to have a profound knowledge on THC and CBD. Well, CBD anyway, yeah. Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Did you see the photo I posted the other day? I should have posted that when we did it. I forgot I had that. Like, you know, in Afghanistan, I have been in cannabis fields that oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, over that the horizon. Yeah. Like, yeah, like as see far that. as you can see, as much as you can see. I've been in a room of- That's the one where your hair and beard just join magically well, that's, together. That's my whole Afghanistan <laughs> life. But I have been amidst marijuana, like in Afghanistan. Anyway, I should have posted that ages ago. I'll, I'll repost it on the main page. Mm. I'll put it as a comment and people are laughing their asses off. And I, I was going to say like, mean, I don't know anything about cannabis. <laughs> So I just need to touch on, you know, I'll go back over THC and CBD briefly because I want people to understand how they act so they can understand the benefit of this other product that is Mm -hmm. available to them. So as Kasara said, you know, THC, it's great for pain, but the downside potentially for some people is the psychoactive properties of it. And it's so potent in its action because it binds very strongly with the cannabinoid receptors, Mm -hmm. CBD1 particularly which is great, makes it very effective, but it limits its application to other conditions in the body. So it's, it's got a narrow focus, but it's very good at, mm-hmm. at that. CBD, on the other hand, it binds to more receptors in the body and it binds to like the CB1, CB2 receptors with quite a low affinity. But the great thing about CBD for pain is that it stops the breakdown of a product that regulates pain in the body called anandamide. So by stopping the enzyme that breaks down that anandamine, you're going to get more pain relief for longer. Mm -hmm. So that's important in a little bit. And, you know, CBD works as a partial antagonist to THC. So it sort of brings down any anxiety that someone might experience Mm -hmm. or the euphoria that comes with it. So what is available in Australia is a compound called palmitoyl ethanol amide or P. I'm just going to say P from now on. So (laughs) P is what's called a cannabimimetic compound which means that it's got a very similar pharmacological effect to cannabis. Okay. But it's not. It's not a cannabinoid. Like it was discovered, you know, over 50 years ago and there's a lot of really, really good research and a lot of clinical studies behind it as a therapeutic substance. So it's got very potent neuroprotective, anti-inflammatory and analgesic actions in the central and the peripheral nervous systems. So it doesn't bind to the cannabinoid receptors like CBD and THC. So it's not strictly an endocannabinoid, but it can enhance those receptors. 
it also stops the breakdown of that enzyme that breaks down the anandamide that gives us pain relief. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm getting it. Okay. So it's working very similarly to CBD, but it's like same, same, but different. Okay. Um, as, the, as, as the Glens would say. Same, same, but different. <laughs> in what form is this pea? So pea is in powder or uh, liquid form, like an oil. Okay. Uh, I'd prefer the powder. It's just easier, bigger tub size, easier to dose. Mm-hmm. But the amazing thing about pea is that, and so our bodies naturally produce it. I should say that. So in response to any pain and inflammation, we'll naturally produce pea. Okay. And it can actually enhance pain relief if you took it with something like CBD or THC. Mm-hmm. But it's not addictive. It's very well tolerated. It's safe to take with pain medication. So if you're in chronic pain and you're on opioid medication, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of contraindications with what else you can take with that drug or mm-hmm. those drugs. So P has no pharmaceutical contraindications, which is phenomenal for a pain-regulating substance. Mm-hmm. Just on that, so something I've noticed with CBD in myself, and I guess because of the lack of research that I have available, I then sort of superimpose that to my dog. But what I've noticed in myself is that when using CBD, opioid painkillers are a lot more effective. And I believe that there's some research to support that. Is this the same with pee? Where so, like what I find when my back is really blown out, what would normally take, say, Panadine, Ford or Endone to have the effect that I need, I can get away with like Panadol, right? When I am taking CBD, um, I find that whether it, I'm not sure how or why that works, but I, I certainly have observed that. Is it the same Look, it could be having a uh, similar synergistic effect, but animal studies, what I have read is animal studies have shown that if morphine, for example, mm-hmm. is given with pee, that the animals are less prone to developing tolerance okay. to the morphine. Cool. And there's also studies to show that pee can surpass ibuprofen for pain relief, so okay. non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And that's huge because your non-steroidals, so nasty in terms of their you know adverse side effects, particularly to the gut. Yep, stomach and ulcers. It just destroys the the gastric lining, and you know as we'll go on today, you know the gut is the heart of mm-hmm. all health and ill health. So, yeah. so in my old job, guys are constantly breaking themselves, and we used to everybody used to carry around in their assault bag what we call the pink ponies, right? Naproxen one thousand milligram, you know, anti-inflammatories. And dudes that eat those like candy. Oh, gosh. Bloody uh, hell. Yeah, and just to keep their bodies working because it's very effective. Mm. But also then they're in like super high-stress jobs and they're probably stress heads anyway, and suddenly they've got stomach ulcers. And mm. it's like, no shit. It's mm. because you're eating anti-inflammatories like they're for free just to keep your body going. Which is just chewing out your gut lining. Destroying it. Mm. And, I mean, the way that the non-steroidals do that is, I mean, they're blocking the cyclooxygenase enzyme, which leads to those pro-inflammatory like cytokines that trigger pain and inflammation, but that same COX enzyme. Excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it, but I thought, oh, if I say it, I'll be the one. Be that's more like, mature. Yeah, everyone will go, oh, Glenn. <laughs> Cyclooxygenase is abbreviated to COX, um, but that's protective of the gut lining. So yeah, by blocking that pathway, it's like statin drugs. You know, statin drugs block you know cholesterol synthesis, mm-hmm. but that same pathway goes on to coenzyme Q10 synthesis. So, you know, you're having a benefit in one way, but a detrimental effect. Well, I'm definitely not putting that in my mouth now. Oh, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Too far, sir. I knew it. All right, back to pee. You can't overdose on pee. It's so safe. If you take more than your body can absorb, it's just going to break down because it's a natural, like, fatty acid, like amide that's naturally produced in the body. So Mm -hmm. 
Can I ask a question? If it's so wonderful, why is it not more mainstream? Well, it's been around. Like it's available through compounding pharmacists and do, know, do many people know about it and utilize it? No, and I don't know why. I'm so only, that's profound in my mind. Like if it if it has these, if I it think has there's not a lot of money in it. I don't know. Mm. I'd have to come down to something like that because from what I've read, there's more research on pee than CBD. Right. It can take up to six weeks to take effect. But one of its main uses is for neurological pain. That's usually the, the catalyst for mo- most um, people though, isn't it? Because of the time frame it usually takes, like the uptake of it to have an effect that people go, oh, it's not working. I'm going to mm. go off it and go on to something that's more immediate, more toxic and more immediate. Yeah. The way I see it, if someone's in chronic pain, you might keep them on their pain meds, introduce pee, and then, you know, after six to eight weeks, slowly start to reduce, you know, their pain med dose mm-hmm. and just sort of take um, it from there and, mm. you know, you wouldn't just come off your pain meds cold turkey for a lot of people, depending on what's going on with them. It's just a new thing. and Look, I'm excited about it and it's new to me because I'm a naturopath and I've never had access to it until this year. Mm. And it's been sold out for, when was it released? Where are we now? I think it was released in June, like for naturopaths to be able to access it. And Every time I look, it's like sold out, sold out, you know, unavailable, sold out. So naturopath is just going crazy for it. Well, what's interesting immediately comes to mind is if it has similar effects to CBD, this is again way more related to people than rather than animals. But one of the reasons I think a lot of people in health and fitness are scared of CBD is that it's really unregulated. And sure, you can buy ones that say they have no THC in it, but if it ends up that it does, that could be for a lot of people you losing your job. And so if you can get similar effects without any risk of failing a drug test, mm. then that's probably pretty cool. Not that that relates to our animals, although in, yeah. I, get, I don't know if they test for THC in racing animals or whatever. But What I've read too, you know, 70% of, like one study found that 70% of CBD products on the market didn't contain what their labels oh, yeah. actually said. So yeah, that, yeah. that is scary. When it comes to herbal medicine, whether it's CBD or you know, any herb, the quality and the extraction process mm-hmm. is fundamental and you know that's why you need to pay a little bit more for quality because if you're not using the right extraction solvents at the right you know concentration and things like that you know plants have you know they contain hundreds of different constituents and some have a therapeutic action and some don't but if you don't get the extraction method right you might be pulling out predominantly um, a constituent that's not going to do you any benefit whereas Mm. the beneficial one gets left behind sort of thing in the plant so that's really important and that's the same with cbd p is I mean, it's produced naturally in the body, but my understanding is it's a synthetic compound, so it's pretty pure, um, right. and the quality of it's pretty standardised. So it's it's made in a lab. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that's just out there for people. You know, people. So it's very safe for dogs. You you know, obviously, you just dose it down for dogs. Good for allergies too. So we've spoken about pain, but pee. One of its actions is to downregulate the activation and the degranulation of mast cells. So mast cells are what's involved in our allergic reactions so food allergies asthma things like that that's histamine release Mm -hmm. but pee can actually downregulate that histamine release so it's good for dogs that are prone to allergies people too cool so do you have a particular brand in mind that you recommend to people or group of brands that you prefer people look into i only know two companies that i have access to you know, obviously through GPs and compounding pharmacists, you know, there's there'd be a much broader availability. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm allowed to list brands. Okay, well then don't. Yeah. If you're not allowed to or you're not sure but about people it. People can message me or email me if they're interested. 
when it first was released for naturopaths to prescribe, it was available, you know, I could add it to an online ordering system for my patients, but something changed with the TGA in the last couple of months that doesn't allow it to be available through online ordering. Right. So I can order it into my clinic and people can get it that way, but I can't just. Okay. So for people listening, they can't just go out and buy this. They have to go see someone and have it prescribed to them or sold to them by a health professional. In Australia. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, what it would be like in the States. Yeah. So it could be completely different, you know, different regulations in the States. I haven't actually haven't looked into that. Okay. Cool. So just before we kick on a little bit further into this anyway, the people who are listening, tell them an active part of your job at the moment. Three days a week, I work as a research officer for a health company. And all I do all day is go through clinical trials and research on different compounds. You know, at the moment, I'm putting together a co-prescribing guide for musculoskeletal disorders. So for people who are on, whether it's paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, opioids, you know, any pain meds, how that can deplete the body of nutrients, what are the side effects, you know, how you can mitigate that with targeted supplementation, what does the body need for good musculoskeletal health, you know, to support tendons, joints, bones, things like that. So, but it's all evidence-based. So I have to, everything I write, there's got to be a paper that I can cite that backs Mm -hmm. it up. So yeah, P, great for allergies, great for nerve pain, great for any pain, great for any inflammation. Contact me for more information on that. But I get a lot of people asking about supplements. So I might get messages about what to use, what not to use, what's the benefit, or they've tried something and they're not getting the results they were hoping for. So I thought I'd just touch on a few of the key ones that I get the most often. So turmeric, mm-hmm. you know, everyone knows turmeric, curcumin. But I think those terms- that, Are they exactly the same thing? Well, I was about to say they're used interchangeably, right. but they're very, well, they're not very different. They're different. Okay. So turmeric doesn't equal curcumin. So to break it down, turmeric is the root of a plant. And the botanical name is curcuma longa. So that's where the curcumin mm-hmm. connection comes in. But turmeric, the root, contains compounds called curcuminoids. Right. There's three primary curcuminoids in turmeric. Curcumin, demethoxycurcumin, and bisdemethoxycurcumin. So the main one, like 75%, give or take, is curcumin. But turmeric root might only contain between 1% to 6% curcuminoids. And then curcumin is a subset of those curcuminoids. So, Okay, so curcumin is like a distillation of the turmeric. Like it is the active part. It's the part you probably want. And so yeah. it's not the all-natural product. It's yeah. the it, You're eating the all-natural product in order to get that part of it. Yeah. And so curcumin would then be, I'm taking the distilled, distilled is probably not the right word, but but like- Like the um, concentrated extract. Refined down, yeah. yeah, yeah, that concentrated extract. So all the studies have shown that curcumin is the most biologically active and has the most therapeutic benefit out of all the compounds in turmeric root. Okay. So you can eat the turmeric root and you're going to get benefit, but just say you've got 2% curcuminoids and then three quarters of that is curcumin, you can see how you're getting a tiny, tiny amount of curcumin mm-hmm. if you're just having curcumin turmeric powder. Yep, got it. So if you've got a product that you're giving your dog and it just says turmeric root powder, mm-hmm. full stop, your dog's not getting a lot of that active right. curcumin that's going to have the therapeutic benefit. So if you're making golden paste mm-hmm. for your dog, I mean, that's great. And it's for general health and well-being. You know, it's it's good. Let's rewind a little bit there and talk about golden paste because we haven't spoken about that. I don't think so, no. Um, and so uh, I used to give my spring of that for an allergy. 
and I don't know whether it worked or not, but I gave it to her. Mm. Uh, and I tried taking it myself just because I do shit like that. And same deal. I'm not sure. It really wasn't at a level where I could notice. And I joined all the Facebook groups and followed all the advice and all of that. And it really wasn't something that I could put my hand on my heart and say it worked or did not work. Look, it's not something I bother with because if I'm going to give something to my dogs, it's going to be for a reason. It's going to be for a therapeutic mm-hmm. reason if they need it. Golden paste is? So golden paste is where you mix up like, you know, there's lots of recipes online. People can Google. They'll get a lot of golden paste recipes. It's turmeric root powder with uh, coconut oil and black pepper. Yep. Just sort of cook down and blend it up. So and you just give whatever dose according to your dog's body size. Mm-hmm. The thing with that, one, you're not getting a therapeutic dose of curcumin. So if you've got a dog with an inflammatory condition or joint pain or allergies, chances are you're not going to see amazing resolution of that state. Yep. Some dogs can have fat malabsorption issues, which we'll talk a little bit more about later with uh, like a case I'll talk about. So the coconut oil can exacerbate like diarrhea yep. in some dogs. Black pepper is a gastric irritant. So again, most dogs it may not be an issue, but if you've got a sensitive dog, the, even the black pepper can. And the role of them. black pepper in uh, the golden paste is to make it more bioavailable. Is that correct? So it does. it's not what's actually doing the work or presumed to be doing the work. It's, it's what helps it along. Absolutely. So turmeric and curcumin even itself um, has a really low bioavailability because it's rapidly broken down by the liver mm-hmm. um, and excreted in the feces. So black pepper contains a compound called piperine. And the way the piperine acts is it does enhance bioavailability, but it does this by inhibiting one of the phase one liver like detoxification mm-hmm. processes. So if the liver can't break it down as rapidly, then it's available yep. in the blood for uptake. So that's the, the mechanism behind that. Okay, cool. So it is needed but it may aggravate some dogs yep. and people. And I think just on the topic of golden paste, I think a lot of people take for granted how much fat and calories is in that mm. coconut oil, yep. right? And so like, oh, yeah, it's good for the dog and here you go. But it is is a lot of calories and a lot of fat in that. Mm. Good calories, good fat. If there is well, calories, calories, but it's good fat, but yeah. still it's a lot of it. But that's a concern itself, isn't it, really? Like you've got coconut oil that may create diarrhea and then you've got black pepper that causes bowel irritation or gastric irritation and you've got like a double whammy. And then you've got like a low therapeutic dose of the active constituent curcumin. Mm, um, Which which is not giving you the effect that you've been working towards trying to get. So I'm curious about this. Let's explore it a little bit. I know it wasn't sort of on the running sheet, but so that golden paste, because there's people who swear by it, you reckon it's probably not as good as maybe some people are leading us to believe? That's my opinion. And again, I come to it from a very like scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. So I like to know, you know, what's in, I mean, as a naturopath, I should be more holistic in terms of, you know, the turmeric root, it's got all those compounds in it. So you're getting that synergy of all those compounds, which can have, you know, great health benefit. But again, if you're trying to target a problem, I just don't think it's enough for most dogs. Okay, cool. The other thing uh, of concern with turmeric is quality. Um, And quality is going to come up a bit with a few of the things I talk about for supplements. So there was a a heap of curcumin samples were confiscated coming out of India, apparently from a really well-known supplier. The the report didn't list the name of the supplier. But when they tested them, they were contaminated. Like 43% of the material was non-turmeric. So it wasn't a pure product. Like they were Mm -hmm. selling it as a pure curcumin supplement. Right. 
but like half of the product was contaminated with non, like with whatever we don't know. Right. It's very Just common. yellow paint that they scraped off a wall. Well, <laughs> seriously, it, they often um, add in flour. So it could be wheat flour, it could be, you know, wheat, rye, barley. So if people have intolerances, yeah. that's an issue. Um, lead has been found in wow. the adulterated products. They do sometimes add um, yellow colouring, but the yellow colour that they use, methanol yellow is neurotoxic, carcinogenic. It's banned in the US. It's banned in Europe. Right. Um, but they want to make it look, you know, brighter and mm-hmm. you know, more appealing. More vibrant. I know it's a hold up sometimes when you've got regulatory bodies that push things back and delay dates and so forth, but thank God for them sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, when you've got that sort of shit coming into the country, Mm. isn't it nice to know that there is a watchdog that is actually looking out for our health and wellbeing and saying, hang on, this this is just toxic crap that's going to kill loads of people or make them very, very sick. Yeah, which is why I'm really particular about the supplements and the products that I buy for myself, my dogs, and that I prescribe for my clients. So. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking, if I'm personally looking for a, a curcumin product, I'm looking for extracts that have been really well clinically tested and trialed and shown to be effective. So you're looking for names. So on the back of the label, it's going to say, you know, turmeric root powder standardized to like 95% curcuminoids or 95% curcumin, but they'll have like a patented name, like the Mariva curcumin, BCM95, Theracumin, curcumin C3 complex, Curcuin, Long Vita. So these are all painted extracts of curcumin that have been clinically trialed over the years. Right. To be re- like. So it's proven. To do what they say mm. that it will do. Right. Um, so I just look for those sort of names on my turmeric products and I'm pretty happy that I'm getting a good quality okay. product. And then that's like uh, usually purchased in a powder form and you just put that in the dog's food or you mix it into, you know, whatever. I use capsules. I mean, you can buy it in powder form. I just buy capsules and just put the capsules in whole or mm-hmm. you can, you know, open a capsule if you depending on your dog, how big it is. Mm-hmm. But really great for dogs for a whole range, like because it targets inflammation so well, you know, inflammation again is the root of a lot of disease states. Yep. So it can be used across the board and it's, it's generally very safe. If you had a dog that had like a bleeding disorder or, you know, blood sugar issues, you know, you'd need to be cautious um, or gallbladder issues, you need to be cautious. But for most dogs, there's no real safety issues. Mm -hmm. So that's turmeric. If anyone has any other questions, they can message me about that. But the next supplement that gets a lot of attention is fish oils. Well, Mm -hmm. omega-3 fatty acids. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Fish oil is a type of omega-3 fatty acid and there's a lot of dog health websites at the moment just really pushing that you should never give your dog fish oil. It's just like the worst thing for them. Why? Their main argument is that fish oil is highly contaminated with uh, you know heavy metals and persistent organic pollutants and you know whatever other nasties are in our oceans. And our oceans are polluted. Like, yeah, yeah. But again, this is where... Quality comes back, and, they, and the other argument is not sustainable. How is fish oil derived? Where do we get that from? Obviously, from fish, but is it, it <laughs> mainly it, the liver of the fish? Of the fish, right? But as I said, it comes down to quality. Like most of the research on omega three fatty acids and their therapeutic benefits is from fish oil. Mm-hmm. But you do need to like it makes me cringe when people go out and buy like a bulk tub of fish oil capsules from like a discount warehouse or, you know, chemist Mm -hmm. because I'm like, yeah, those fish oil capsules probably are rancid already. They're probably fully contaminated with heavy metals and, you know, DDT and pesticides and things like that. 
So you've got to wonder why they're cheap. Okay. So if you use a you know high quality fish oil, they will go through like a very stringent process to remove all of the nasties. Mm-hmm. For example, I got and companies that are doing the right thing will provide you with a certificate of analysis of their fish oil. Right. So I looked at one recently from a company that I use a lot of. I don't think it's the one you use, but it's same, same. Okay. So just to pick one example from their certificate analysis, it, I think it was arsenic. The TGA, like Australian standard for arsenic in fish oil, one part per million. Their internal company standard for their fish oil is 0.1 part per million. Right. And their certificate of analysis shows that none was detected. Okay, cool. So, you know, the government says you can have up to one, but with their purification process, there's actually none in there. And it's the same with the persistent organic pollutants and the other heavy metals. You know, there's nothing left. The other argument is that fish oils, you know, go rancid because they're so fragile. And that's true. Um, But again, a, a good quality fish oil, if you buy a liquid, you know, there's a gap between where the liquid ends and the lid mm-hmm. starts. If that's oxygen, then even before you open it, that oxygen is going to be oxidizing yep. the fish oil, so it'll go rancid. Companies that are doing the right thing will flush that oxygen out with nitrogen, which is inert. So until you open it, that, you know, that fish Stays oil fresh. is stable. And you need to be sensible. You know, I you know, buy fish oils in dark glass bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as you open it, put it in the fridge. It's not economical, but for fish oils, I buy the smallest size so it gets used up quickly. Mm-hmm. Just common sense strategies like that. But fish oils can be nasty, but it's it's what you buy. So what's the alternative to fish oil? Like if people are adamant they're not going to use it, what's what's a strong alternative? I just want to, on the, the quality aspect, Standard fish oils that you buy in those, you know, most chemists and health stores, the concentration of the active constituents, the EPA and the DHA, which are doing all the good work, the industry standard is like 180 grams of EPA and 120 grams of DHA. If I buy a high quality fish oil, say liquid, I might be getting like 2,500 milligrams of EPA in one teaspoon. So, you know... Someone might have to swallow 15 yeah. fish oil capsules. <clears throat> That's the issue with fish oil as well. To get a therapeutic dose. You're taking an insane amount. You buy this yeah. giant tub, but it's not that you're buying. And that's people not, don't that's do not that. That's not a year's supply. That's the, to actually get the right amounts, you're going through yeah. 15, 20 a day in some cases. Yeah. So if I've, got, if I've got a human client with arthritis, you know, I want them on a minimum of like two to 3,000 milligrams of EPA a day. So, yeah, if that's capsules, that's like, you know, 20 fish oil capsules, they're not going to comply. Then they're going to say fish oil doesn't work. Right. But if you can give them one teaspoon of a high quality liquid and they're done yep. for the day, like that's easy and they're going to mm-hmm. comply. And the good quality fish oil capsules, you know, instead of 180 EPA, they'll have like 500 to 650 milligrams of EPA. So again, significantly reducing what you need to take mm-hmm. and the quality. So if you think about it, fish oil capsules, you know, they're all similar size. So if one's got 180 EPA, 120 DHA, and it's the same size as one with 650 milligrams of EPA and, I know, 260 of DHA, what's filling the rest of that capsule? Yeah. So, you know, it's like the adulterated turmeric capsule. So they're filling that with other oils. It could be soybean oil. You know, you don't know. Yeah. So that's something to think about too. So to, to get those omega-3s, am I right? Is salmon roe a natural source of that, like basically fish eggs? I've never thought about fish eggs, like salmon oil, you know, the liver of the salmon yeah. is a good source, but I mean, it would be. Yeah. I've got a feeling, uh, you know, I shouldn't say it out loud because you're the expert and I'm not, but I, I, 
I've got a feeling that salmon roe is a, a very high source of that, but I doubt too many people are going to be feeding their dogs caviar. Yeah, no, that's probably why I haven't looked into it. <laughs> not my pay packet yeah. <laughs> to yeah. give the dogs. So alternatives to fish oil. So krill oil made a big impact. impact, you know, a few years ago when it came on the scene. And the whole deal with krill oil is, so fish oil is in what's called a triglyceride form. Krill oil is in a phospholipid form. Our cellular membranes are phospholipid form. So the argument is because it's the same form as our cellular membranes, it's more readily taken up and better absorbed. But most of the studies done today show that there's like no significant difference between the bioavailability of krill and fish. Okay. Krill oil is more expensive. So if I've got someone who wants, you know, wants to lower cholesterol or wants to help with joint pain, I'll say start with fish oil because if you can, you know, if you can get a therapeutic result with a cheaper product, Mm -hmm. great. So krill's more expensive and, you know, krill comes with other things. It's got astaxanthin, which is, you know, an antioxidant and you're getting some other vitamins and and things like that. But there's not, like even the astaxanthin, they'll say, oh, wow, you know, it's so amazing as an antioxidant. But most of the research is done on astaxanthin separate from the krill oil. Right. So, you know, they're they're using a higher dose of astaxanthin separately in a clinical trial and then saying because krill oil contains it, it will also have that therapeutic Mm -hmm. benefit. Just not necessarily the case. Not, I mean, it may, but not necessarily the case. Yep. We don't know. So just on that, with, say, this pea, with turmeric, with fish oil, we're, we're talking about those for our pets in regards to supplementation. Mm. But all those things, to me, it sounds like at this point where you're saying with the curcumin, not so much with the turmeric, but this is thing that you could include in the diet all the time mm. because there's no side, there's no negative impact in having that without the display of acute symptoms that you would then prescribe it for. Yeah. Some of the human studies say that turmeric or curcumin shouldn't be taken in high doses long term. Okay. I can't remember what the the reason behind that. But yeah, fish oil at standard doses is very safe. And I think, you know, most dogs would benefit from the omega threes if they're on well, a kibble diet or a raw food diet. Okay. Um so I want to quickly finish the supplement. So green lip muscle is another alternative and People ask me a lot about green lip muscle. So green lip muscle is amazing because it's got all your omega-3 fatty acids. It's got vitamins, minerals, amino acids, antioxidants, and enzymes. So fish oil's got EPA and DHA. Green lip muscle has those as well as something called ETA, which is Ecosa tetranoic acid. So remember when we were talking about pea and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, I said they work by blocking that COX mm-hmm. enzyme. Um, the COX blockers. <laughs> so epa i mean epa and dha they um they reduce inflammation by blocking that (laughs) enzyme as well but the eta which is unique to greenlit muscle it doesn't just block the enzyme it actually works at a gene level to reduce the production of that enzyme okay so that's that's pretty cool so i've got to stop talking about (laughs) <laughs> Cox. <laughs> but what is greenlit muscle? I don't know what that is. What is it's it? It's a muscle. But it's unique it's, to- It's delicious on the smoker um, too. Ah, okay. So like muscle is in- Like a- Like, like a, a mollusk. Like a, a mollusk. mollusk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we had them the other night. They were awesome. Yeah. Right. Okay. But they've been around for, uh, like I think in, in that powder sashes blend, I think that was one of the main components of uh, it. It's, a, it's been around for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I've been using that for- 25 years like george okay. schofield even recommended that as part of a supplement for for dogs the greyhound people there they were adamant about it right for any and type of 
of inflammatory issues in, in joints and hips and stuff like that. Yeah. That was part of the... But we're not talking yeah. about feeding our dog muscles. You're talking about a supplement. So it comes yeah. in some sort it's of powder. powder. Yeah, yep. it's powder. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the things you can give green lip muscles, like feed them mm-hmm. to your dog and they will be beneficial. But I guess when I talk about supplements, I'm talking about targeting a problem okay. in your dog. So if you've got a dog with joint issues or any, you know, pain issues, this would be a good one. And there's like decades of research and, and good quality studies behind green lip muscle. And particularly, so again, coming back to those, you know, extraction processes mm-hmm. and the active constituents like Antonol, you would have heard of, mm-hmm. is one brand that does green lip muscle. And it's particularly like high quality green lip muscle that does have a lot of clinical trials that's used that particular extract and shown, you know, great benefits. So that's a good one. You remember, I think the first time you were on, we talked about how it is possible to have a vegan dog. Not that mm. you recommend it, but that it is possible. I listened to a podcast a while ago that suggested vegans should probably eat mussels because they're they're less sentient than a plant. Oh, like wow. The, yeah, there's less going on in its brain. It's less reactive. Like a tree is more reactive to its environment than... Well, considering the new research that's coming out in tree roots and like the, especially in things like fungi with the mycelium network and so forth, like it's just crazy what they're producing. It's almost like that movie Avatar, Mm. yeah, where they're they're tapping trees, reacting off other trees being cut down and so forth. It's so it's right up there. So you are vegans. Should you, you should be ashamed of yourselves. No, well, (laughs) how do you, sir? I know, but it's probably okay to eat them because they don't know they're getting eaten. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. yeah no, I might have I. just made it up. Be interesting. We'll, we're we're going <laughs> to have some, do some checking of you. Do, just like supplements, you should check what I say because well, it I'm might, pretty be, sure it might be total bullshit. <laughs> we're, I'm almost certain a vegan's going to respond to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. they can check it out. Yeah, good. Um, We'd need to know. The other one that's really being pushed at the moment is phytoplankton. So phytoplankton is just a, a type of microalgae and there's you know thousands of different species of phytoplankton and, and some have benefits some don't i don't know about phytoplankton i think it's again one of those general health and well-being products but i don't think it's got so much in it you know it's you've got all your chlorophylls and your amino acids and vitamins and minerals and fatty acids but i don't think it's strong enough in any one component to say this is what i would use it for Mm -hmm. but it's not to say that it wouldn't be beneficial for a dog to take okay what about the seed based and it's expensive from my understanding so Seed oils. Because there's quite a an uptake in seed oils for quite a period of time in, in relation to... Yeah, things like flaxseed oil. Flaxseed oil, that's the one um, I'm thinking of. So yeah. I was thinking linseed, but that's the wrong one. No, it's the same thing. Is so it? flaxseed is the American term. There you go. And in Australia, um, technically we use linseed, but yep. it's so interchangeable. Same, same, but different. Yeah. Yep. Like coriander and cilantro. Yeah. Yep. Same thing. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's like aluminium and aluminum, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> like like tomato and tomato, <laughs> like potato and potato. So flaxseed oils, look, I wouldn't use them as a source of omega-3 fatty acids because, you know, it's been clearly shown that the ability of the dogs to convert that um, alpha-linolenic acid that you get in the, the plant, you know, like your chia seeds and your flax seeds and your walnuts and things like that, they can't convert it to the DHA and the EPA, which is what they need to have a health benefit. But so I wouldn't give a, like a flaxseed oil, but 
giving ground nuts and seeds and ground flax seed, like the actual meal and the actual seed can be hugely beneficial, not necessarily the omega-3 component, but the fibre, so the Mm -hmm. soluble fibre, great sources of trace minerals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have a place, but again, if you want that anti-inflammatory effect of the EPA and the DHA, you really do need to pick a marine source. So in your opinion, your go-to is what? I've always used fish oil, but I've never had a dog that's needed anything beyond that. So I don't know if I had a dog that had arthritis, I might use, you know, the green lip muscle or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's just that's just my personal personal opinion. Opinion. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. So I had a, a dog client present recently and I just thought, without disclosing anything about who it is, just talk about the case because it's really interesting and I think it's more prevalent than people realise in both people and dogs. And it's a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm-hmm. So SIBO for short, lots of acronyms. So SIBO, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we're not supposed to, our dogs are not supposed to have a lot of bacteria in the small intestine. Okay, You're going to get some, but the majority of the bacteria should be in the large intestine and, and the colon. Mm-hmm. So if you get a migration of bacteria um, up into the small intestine, particularly uh, the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine after the stomach, and I think Americans pronounce it duodenum. Not sure. The jujujum. Yeah, in the movie. Semi-pro. With, where, semi-pro where, where he punches, where he punches him, in him in it to make him vomit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you've got the... <laughs> <laughs> I've never thrown up. That is one of the greatest scenes. That is one of the... That is movie master. Have you ever been punched right in the jujujum? The junum. Yeah. Well, you got the duodenum, then you got the jejunum. The ju- <laughs> no, I can't even say it normally. And then the um, ileum before you get to. Yeah. Well, that's. Where I it did gets not punched. realize that was a real thing. I thought yeah. they made that up. Same, for same. Um, so if you get too many bacteria growing in the duodenum or the small intestine, you're going to get a lot of symptoms of like bloating, gas, because that's where all our nutrients are broken down and absorbed. So if you're, so and that's going to act as a fuel source for the bacteria that shouldn't be there. So you're going to get a lot of gastric distress, basically. Uh, It presents in dogs as diarrhea, weight loss, uh, failure to um, thrive, you know, for for growing dogs. Mm -hmm. And it can come about if there's not enough gastric acid, if there's an issue with the the, what's called the ileocecal valve, which is a valve between the small intestine and the large intestine, and allowing bacteria to migrate up Mm -hmm. to the small intestine, both humans and dogs have what's called a migrating motor complex, which it's like a peristaltic wave that, you know, every 60 to 90 minutes like pushes stuff through. Okay. So if that's not doing its job properly, you're going to get like a stagnation and and things can just, you know, take hold and grow and mm-hmm. ferment and things like that. So is a possible cause of this sugar? It may is aggravate it? it. It wouldn't be probably a cause. Right, Okay. You know, one of the other causes that they think, and German shepherds are particularly susceptible to this condition as well, is, and in German shepherds, they don't produce enough of a compound called secretory IgA. And secretory IgA is an immunoglobulin, but it's concentrated to the mucous membranes of the body, so the respiratory tract and the gastrointestinal tract. And it's responsible for creating like a really thick, healthy mucus layer across the intestinal mm-hmm. wall or, you know, if it's a respiratory tract, the lungs and things like that. And that mucus layer acts as like a first line of defence against pathogenic bacteria or just any anything that shouldn't come in contact with the intestinal wall, um, it's protecting it. So if you've got a dog that's producing 
less of that secretory IgA, they're more susceptible to infections and mm-hmm. pathogenic bacteria taking hold, things like that. So the other thing too, if you've got an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine where it shouldn't be, they can damage the intestine mm-hmm. there. Um, that can create like secondary nutrient deficiencies because the cells can't then take up yep. the nutrients that they would otherwise. The bacteria actually, what's called deconjugate or unbind bile salts. And when they do that, that's what triggers like that fat malabsorption and the diarrhea that you see. Uh, They also can stimulate the production of inflammatory cytokines. They can compete themselves for nutrients with a dog. So basically, if you've got a dog that's got like chronic diarrhea, uh, is losing weight, has any other gastric symptoms, vomiting's not a typical symptom, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to consider, consider this. Okay. So, you know, the vet is this, yeah, I was going to say, is this something a vet would be? Yeah, you'd look, yes, I would go to the vet and get a full like blood panel mm-hmm. done, uh, stool samples done, rule out, you know, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, things like that. So you want to rule out anything else. Um, but one of the most, you can do hydrogen breath testing, which is commonly done in people. It can be done in dogs, but it's not very practical mm-hmm. to do. And you can get a lot of false negatives and false positives. But something that is quite reliable is measuring folate vitamin B9 and vitamin B12 levels okay. in the dog. So, you know, when I learned this, I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, why is it so? And in SIBO, you will see like low levels, like below range levels of B12 and potentially elevated levels of folate. So if it comes back that folate's elevated and you feed your dog a lot of plant matter, that could be contributing to the folate. Or if your dog eats a lot of grass or eats a lot of poo from, I don't know, rabbits or possums or, you know, that eat plant matter, that could falsely elevate the folate. But bacteria produce folate. So that's why that's generally elevated. And they consume B12, which is what reduces it in the plasma. So B12 to be absorbed needs to bind to what's called an intrinsic factor and they can damage that ability to bind to the intrinsic factor, so the body's not absorbing as much B12 anyway from the diet. So, so low B12, high folate's quite um, indicative okay. of SIBO. So you've got a dog who's losing weight, maybe has diarrhea, but is eating fairly normally. You said that was or, or a reduced appetite with it? But just normal, yeah. Okay, so he's eating normally, but he's losing weight, he's got diarrhea and he's not acting himself, and you go to the vet for a workup, maybe you would then – maybe suggest to the vet that can we get his B levels tested and that would be an indicator of SIBO. Yeah, so B12 and folate, they probably wouldn't test anything else, but that's fine anyway. Um, so it's just something for people to keep in mind. Well, you know, the thing is like with the amount of people that are listening, someone that that's someone's dog. Yeah. That that, that someone has just gone, oh, mm. that's fucking what's wrong with my dog. So You just got to pretend that you don't know about it like you had to do with that doctor who, well, actually you did know about it and he was just being an ass to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's another story. Mm. Um, look, things that you might consider, I mean, the go-to treatment f- from a veterinary perspective is um, antibiotics, Okay. obviously, and, you know, they will give a quick resolution, but then you've got, you know, those downstream effects of damaging the, you know, the beneficial mm-hmm. gastric microbiota and things like that. Um, but things you, you would want to consider, digestive enzymes, because the bacteria in the small intestine, like having that the non-commensal pathogenic bacteria there, because they're damaging what's called the brush border or, or the lining, that's where our enzymes are. So by damaging that, your dog's, you know, it has a reduced ability to actually break down food and extract 
Mm-hmm. the nutrition from it. Okay, so that's where the weight loss would be coming from. Yeah, and a lot of secondary, and with the fat malabsorption, you're going to get secondary deficiencies in like your fat-soluble vitamins like ADE, not K so much because bacteria can actually produce vitamin K mm-hmm. in the intestines. So I'd be looking at digestive enzymes. You know, in the short term, supplementing with hydrochloric, like a hydrochloric acid supplement, like a betaine hydrochloride, because pathogenic bacteria thrive in a more alkaline environment. So, you know, you want to increase that. And a dog that's on like a, you know, most dogs on a kibble, 100% kibble diet, you know, year after year, from what I've read, tend to have a higher pH. Okay. So less acid, but higher pH okay. um, than dogs read fed raw. Oh, so there's a particular, pro- probiotics would be beneficial, but I'm going to, I don't know how much time we've got, but. We've got all the time. Yeah, we're not on a time limit. Because I might talk about fiber shortly because I get a lot of questions about fiber and prebiotics, but prebiotic fibers, like some of them can actually aggravate. So if I've got a client who's got, you know, diarrhea and, and bloating and I'm like, oh, you know, you should go on slippery arm because, you know, that's going to help bind you up and it's going to be very healing to the gut and things like that. If that makes them worse, mm-hmm. then I'm immediately thinking SIBO. Okay. Because something like slippery arm is a great prebiotic. And if you've got bacteria in the small intestine and you give it more food, then you're going to get a worsening yep. of symptoms. Fiber is important, but the type of fiber is going to vary, you know, in situations like this. But there's a particular probiotic. It's actually a yeast, Saccharomyces boulardii. So you can buy a lot of it supplements. You just buy it as pure SB. But it's brilliant because it's it's great for any allergy dogs or yeasty dogs. Like I use it a lot. Our shepherd Randy. Shepherds are prone to like yeasty ear infections and things like that just to add to their list of susceptibilities. He does get it frequently, yep. Yeah, and it's like we just had, when Glenn was in the States, because I had a lot to manage here by myself, I popped Randy in the kennels and he was on, you know, 100% kibble Mm -hmm. for that time. And when he came out, he had a massive flare-up of like yeasty ear and, you know, fungal stuff in his belly and things like that. So straight away, you know, I'm boost, I've added SB, this particular probiotic, to his regime and the way it works, one, it competitively inhibits pathogenic bacteria and yeast in the gastrointestinal tract, but it also promotes the production of secretory IgA. So it helps boost that protective mucus layer that we, you know, that our dogs need, right. which is an immune, you know, support factor. So, so that's pretty amazing. So SB supporting the immune system. So you know, mushrooms and like lactoferrin and things like that, like medicinal mushrooms. Ginger is very good for promoting that motility mm-hmm. so that migrating motor complex so it's not such a big deal with dogs more with humans that that the issue but uh, you know i would be looking at herbs such as ginger and bitters which again stimulate that motility and just help to flush the bacteria out okay yeah so that yeah and then you know you would need to supplement with b12 for a period of time to replete stores mm-hmm. with that and how what's the best way to supplement b12 i would just buy like a pure like a human grade B12. human grade yeah mm. And I know I've mentioned this before. So if people have heard my first two podcasts on the general. Health and wellbeing. Well, just on the, you know, generally available publicly podcast. I don't know if I spoke about it in there, but my third podcast, which is within Patreon, like I highly recommend that everyone just jumps on Patreon to listen. Yeah, us too. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was so much better. I was so nervous in my first two podcasts, but we covered a lot of material in that third. It went for nearly two hours from memory. Mm. Um, the third podcast. So, you know, people just jump into Patreon and then they can listen to my awesome third podcast. And I and all the other amazing content in there, let, mm. me, let me just say. 
But I spoke a lot about why I choose human grade yeah. supplements in yeah. that podcast. Um, and I think that's really important. So I won't revisit that today. I'm curious about B12 because I've had B12 injections and they feel fucking amazing. They um, hurt. Yeah, they hurt to get. But, oh, yeah. But you feel is, great. Yeah, you do. Um, I, I wasn't aware that there's a, what, a powder or something you can take? I, I don't know um, that. I always recommend, depending on the level of deficiency in someone. So, I mean, if you go to a chemist, you can get, you know, really low strength. I mean, I guess for dogs, that's fine. But if we're talking humans just now, the standard dose is like a thousand micrograms of B12 in just a, um, like a tablet or I prefer sublingual. So it actually dissolves in the mouth and bypasses the gut completely because mm-hmm. if, People have gut issues or if they've got pernicious anemia, which means they've got an issue with that intrinsic factor binding to B12, you could be swallowing all the B12 you want and not getting the benefits. So sublingual B12 is more effective, goes straight into the bloodstream or into muscular Mm. injections. But I, you know, for humans, I'll prescribe regularly like 5,000 micrograms a day to boost someone up because B12 is fundamental like to health. I just about to say, I I didn't know whether I was talking great big heap of shit or or anything like that, but- there was a time a while ago I heard on another podcast that B12 was heralded and touted as one of the wonder vitamins, like the go-to. It's part of the formulation that you must have. It is. It's critical for so many systems in our body, you know, mental health, gut health, immune health, you know, just it's very broad reaching in, in what it does. And fortunately, doctors are quite good at testing B12. My frustration is... In Australia, the reference range is approximately, it might be like 250 micrograms up to 600 micrograms. So as long as you're in that range, you know, the doctor's like, you're fine. But other countries have now realised the importance of B12. And I think, again, don't quote me, like Japan, it may be, the bottom of their reference range is like 600 yeah. micrograms upward. So, And what's the bottom of ours? What did you say? Around two, two wow. 300. Okay. But people can be experiencing like neurological symptoms or, you know, nerve, like neuropathic, like nerve conditions at, you know, 300 micrograms, depends on the person. So I don't like to see less than 600 on a blood test. And even if you're low, they'll then test what's called the active B12, um, which is what's inside the cell. And as long as you're, I think it's over 39 is the reading, you know, they say you're fine, but really you want to be over hundred, like 39. So you don't, die you know mm. it's one of those sort of things so but no b12 is really important so every everyone that sees me every human that sees me as a client i will request b12 as part of their blood panel okay yeah so supplementing dogs probably can't hurt to just keep it in there yeah and there's no safe upper limit for b12 so it's, it's go extreme, crazy like don't go crazy crazy but yeah there's no toxic yeah um, like ice cream that's what i heard <laughs> <laughs> just one thing i, I I didn't plan to talk about it, but with things like SIBO, where you've got like a, a pathogenic overgrowth of bacteria or, or a yeast infection, something that gets put online to use for dogs and humans is citrus seed extract. Familiar with it? No. It's different to, like, don't confuse it with grape seed extract. Like, grape seed extract is a really phenomenal. I know grape seed, but I haven't heard of citrus seed. Yeah, so grape seed's a really nice antioxidant that's very beneficial. Citrus seed extract. It's an antimicrobial, like it's a, it's sold as a potent antimicrobial agent. So if you've got any dysbiosis or your dog's got any dysbiosis, you know, you would give this supplement. But What's dysbiosis? Pathogenic overgrowth, mm-hmm. like overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria or fungi or yeast or protozoa or okay, good. just bad guys. Yep. 
But the thing with citrus seed extract, it's shown to be like, it is really powerful and potent as an antimicrobial, but it will wipe out everything. It's like a broad spectrum antibiotic, basically. Right, okay. and so it's a systems bleach. Yeah, and it's the studies that I've looked at show that it's actually more detrimental to our beneficial bacteria than it is mm. to the pathogenic bacteria. So our bifidobacterium are particularly susceptible. So, you know, you are just wiping out everything. Mm. And apparently it's not a natural product. So it's sold as a natural, you know, citrus seed extract product, but it's nearly always adulterated. And naturally it doesn't have antimicrobial activity, but it's only when it's spiked with things like triclosan and, you know, methylparabenes and things like that, that it, it becomes antimicrobial. But right. most people don't know that. And there was a statement by the American Botanical Council, because it falls under them. So yeah, most is adulterated. Most of the antimicrobial activity is due to synthetic additives and not the grapefruit seed extract. Oh, so that's the other name for it, grapefruit seed extract or mm -hmm. citrus seed extract. They basically tell people to avoid it at all costs because of how contaminated it is with nasty chemicals. Okay. So, yeah, if you've got a dog with cyber and you're like, ah, citrus seed extract or grapefruit seed extract, you know, kill all those pathogenic bacteria, but you might as well go to the vet and just get a, antibiotics. an antibiotic that's more targeted. So that's that. So I'm going to actually listen to a – it wasn't a podcast. It was just a recording with Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib mm -hmm. the other week, and I love – listening to her so you know she's so passionate and she explains things so well like for the average person you know to really take on what she's saying yeah she knows her subject matter very well yeah and so the recording that I listened to recently was about the importance of plant matter in our dog's diet you know so vegetables predominantly so the main argument for why dogs shouldn't have plant matter is that they don't have salivary amylase okay and they do produce some well, the argument is they don't produce salivary amylase, but they produce a little bit of pancreatic amylase. But if you feed plant matter, it's going to stress the pancreas to produce more amylase than it naturally would. And then that's going to be a problem for your dog. But Dr. Karen Becker was like, you know, dogs produce a ton of pancreatic amylase. So that's not even an argument. Like that's ends. That's like, bro science. Like right there. Like that's, you know, and dogs, you know, some people do classify dogs as omnivores because they do produce so much pancreatic amylase, so they can handle a lot of plant matter. Okay. Dogs don't produce cellulase, which is the enzyme that breaks down like the wall, like the cell wall of the plant, but that's a good thing because then that can act for the, the bacteria, you know, mm -hmm. to feed on. But what Karen Becker went on to say, and I'm a huge proponent of plant matter in our dog's diet because plants are the only source of phytonutrients that our dogs are going to get. So phytonutrients, you know, compounds like sulforaphane or like in broccoli, you know, really potent anti-cancer properties. So, you know, plants contain a lot of like key compounds that support the immune system, repair DNA damage, enhance immunity, you know, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, you know, detoxifying. So generally, you know, they're reducing the risk of disease and cancer. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, if you want to deny your dog good health, yeah, don't feed plants. Right. But like... You know, her thing is like, well, why wouldn't you, you know, want that for your dog? So I highly recommend people Google, you know, Dr. Karen Becker and feeding your dog vegetables um, and listen to it because she's really full on about the importance of plant matter yeah. for our dogs. What you said then kind of ties into something I've been thinking about the entire time you're speaking it, and I probably should have said this at the start of the podcast and I had planned to wrap up with it, but it fits now is, you know, we just recently did this episode on consent, right? And we, and most people sort of agree that a dog doesn't consent to anything and that people can, because you understand the repercussions of consent. And I think that 
a lot of what you've been talking about is really heavy, detailed. It would be hard to follow. You know, I've, I'm fairly well educated on this stuff and it can be hard for me to follow. At least people can rewind and re-listen to stuff and look up things as you're talking mm. about it. But the why bother, right, And it is I feel like relating back to what we talked about recently in regards to consent is we as people, I spoke about at the start, I have consented to being quite fat. Right, because I enjoyed the process of getting there, and I am fully aware of the repercussions that that will lead to. You know, the, the bad part of that shitty health, right? And I'm giving putting myself at risk of all kinds of things. Yeah, but I've done it, right? I know that, and I think that what's interesting and why this is worth like looking after your pet and and why it is trying to understand this. From my point of view, I think of it in regards to I consider my dogs, specifically Remy, but Valerie the same. Obviously, I'm very interested in her health, but Remy, I I consider an athlete, right? Like an elite athlete. I try to keep him at the peak of physical fitness because I expect him to perform. I demand it of him, right? So Mm. therefore, I I try to keep him that way. But for everybody listening, I feel like your dog doesn't have the choices that you have like you can consent to getting fat and being unhealthy if you so choose and good on you i'm on your team Mm. (laughs) right but your dog has to eat what's put in front of him right or he has no choice he's not making any decisions about this he gets what he gets and i think we we've agreed that they don't have consent but even if they did we've taken it away because they're they're getting what's in the bowl. Mm. And it's why I think, you know, I remember hearing one time about people getting upset that in the prison system, there are dietitians that manage what is served, right? They're on a, it's not just here's what it is. They get a program. Caloric intake. Yeah. Mm. And and to make sure that their nutrient needs are met is because we took away, they don't have. And same in schools as well. Yeah. Like Mm. you're getting what you're fucking getting and there's no other choices. Mm. So it's up to us. They're ever eating. Well, Jamie Oliver had a real crack about that in the the public schools. Like he just said, this is outrageous. Yeah. So they're getting what's put in front of them. Yeah. And so when we're doing that with our dogs, Mm. he's going to get what we give him. And if we've made the choice, okay, I'm going to make you unhealthy. He has no choice because he doesn't have choice. He only has the choices we give him. And yep. we discussed last week, this is what I find really interesting is the amount of people that like really focus on one narrow part of a dog's health. Mm. So there's people who like, you know, I'm big on the box feeding thing, right? And toughening and strengthening dogs. And then people go, oh no, I can't do that because I feed raw. And I go, okay, but you're not looking at the whole picture of the dog. And then there's people that are, are the opposite and they say, well, you know, I, I'm working for food. So to feed uh, anything other than just a, a kibble base is too much of a headache for me because I'm working for that. And it's like, okay, well, you're going to have a really highly well, like well-trained dog and you're going to fit into one aspect of what I think is holistic. Oh, one's facet, but it's not holistic. You're not, mm. you're not fitting the whole thing. And um, I saw um, Felicia put that. Myth yeah, that's why anyway. I shared it. I shared mm. that. Yeah, um, I saw that. So it's like, you can do it. You can do it all. Yep. And like I say, m- my dog, you know, it, he eats a kibble base, a very high quality kibble, but it's still kibble. But I am careful to supplement it. And I think that I, I really keep an eye on my dog and I know my dog. It's like when Dr. Kassara Andre was on here and I said, like, from one dose of CBD, I could tell what the effect and change in him. No one else would be able to. It's because I know the dog really well. And because he is a performance dog and he wasn't performing, he was performing at 95 instead of 100%. Mm. But I think, and what you were just talking about, that's why I wanted to get on my little ranty horse there, is why that's why I think this is really worthwhile people, at the minimum, having a an intro, a window into how to supplement your dog and why you should bother, 
rather than just like, oh, this is, he gets what he gets. Because the truth is he does just get what he gets mm-hmm. and that will be his- It's he, consenting to your choice. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it, right? So yep. like he will be as healthy as you can make him. Exactly. Yeah. And that's true. And look, studies have shown that dogs fed a purely like meat-based diet have a lower- microbial diversity mm-hmm. and then you know there are a lot of studies and there's more and more coming out in this area now that the greater the diversity of our gut microbiota the better the health of dogs and humans increase longevity uh, i think the one study said that dogs on average will live three years longer if they've got increased diversity mm-hmm. and that comes from fiber that comes from plant matter providing fiber to feed a good bacteria in mm-hmm. our dog's systems uh, to produce you know short chain fatty acids which have a whole, you know, raft of health benefits, you know, cancer protective benefits, immune benefits, metabolic benefits. So, yeah, absolutely, you know, I couldn't imagine not incorporating that. And and we do have a huge responsibility as dog owners to, you know, give our dogs what's best. And, you know, yeah. the science is there now to show that this is the way. And and Dr. Karen Becker, she went on to talk about the 80-10-10 rule of feeding and she's like, well, that's not based on anything scientific. Okay. So what, just give us 80, 10, 10, it's 80% meat. 80% muscle meat, um, 10% bone, 10% organ meat. Okay. Um, and so it's like a, you know, prey model feeding regime, mm-hmm. but she f- believes that that's hugely inadequate nutritionally over time Okay. and not based on science. Uh, it was funny. She's like, her guess is that one day some person like eyed up a rabbit and sort of went, mm, yeah. 80, 10, 10. <laughs> so, yep. And that's sort of where that was born. But, you know, and a lot of the meats and the organ meats as well, you know, they're not as nutritionally dense as they were. And, and we spoke about this in my last podcast, so get onto Patreon and listen to that. Yes. But this is where- That you know, was fascinating. Where plant matter, yeah. Mm, that was fascinating and also distressing. Yeah. So Karen uses that too as an argument, like where plants and nuts and seeds, because they're so dense in uh, trace minerals- that they do have a real place in our dogs for long-term health and wellness. And even the work I'm doing for the health company at the moment on musculoskeletal disorders and, you know, supporting musculoskeletal health, which is bones, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, trace minerals play a huge role in that. So boron, manganese, copper, selenium, they're all like fundamental components of like that matrix that makes up our connective tissue. So mm-hmm. if you've got a dog that's prone to like cruciate ligament problems or just any sort of ligament tissue damage problems, you need to be even more concerned about trace minerals and not just, you know, protein and calcium and things like that. So plant matter can provide that, you know, nuts and seeds, vegetables can provide that. Cool. I need to share because I only came across it this morning, just because we're on the topic of fiber, sort of. The The title is Bacteria Eat Gut Lining in the Absence of Dietary Fiber. And I'm like, Oh my God, how cool is that? So it goes back, you know, how earlier I spoke about that secretory IgA producing like a really nice mucus layer Mm -hmm. in the gastrointestinal system. So um, that mucus layer is made up of what's called glycoprotein. So glyco, think carbohydrate, protein, think protein, but it's like 80% carbs. So if your dog or if, I think these were animal studies because it's just new information coming out, if there's not enough fiber for your gut bacteria to feed on, they will then turn on that mucus layer that's got carbohydrate in it as a fuel source because they, they want to survive. Mm-hmm. So it's like cannibalism going on inside us. And, so, and then that's going to affect, it's going to lead to inflammation, it's going to affect um, you know, immune 
regulation and things like that. But be another good reason for plant matter so your dog's bacteria don't start eating your dog's gut lining. With that, I know you've just sort of only just got that info. Is that in the absence of fibre but the presence of carbs? I think it would just be, I mean, they're talking dietary fibre, but if you're consuming, well, as long as it's a source of carbohydrates that could bacteria can eat. Okay, so prebiotics are a type of fibre that feed our good bugs, but not all fibre is a prebiotic. Okay. So to be classified as a prebiotic, which is going to provide fuel for our gut bugs, it you know it must pass through the gastrointestinal tract undigested. It must stimulate the growth of beneficial bacteria and it must confer a, a benefit to the host, so us or our dogs. So not any carbohydrate is going to cut it. Right. I'm just curious because uh, you remember when I did the carnivore thing? Yes. The argument for the total absence of fiber in that diet is that also the total absence of carbohydrates. And they say, and, and look, I did it and I did it strict. I did it for a month and I felt fucking great. Still makes me cringe. <laughs> <laughs> but Jerry Bradshaw is doing it too. Is he? Yeah. He said he He's lost to. a ton of weight. Yeah. So like, it's not for everybody, but mm. look, I liked it. Anyway. Yeah. He went, he did it off your advice and he dropped a ton of kilos. Did he? Yeah. Mm. Oh my goodness. Well, there you go. Having an impact. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, their, their argument for a total lack of fiber being okay is that there's also a total lack of carbs. And they, you know, to, to say, oh, I'm eating steak and chips, uh, that's a problem. But mm. when you're just eating steak, they say it's okay. Anyway, let's not go down okay. that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's a, another study that came out last year on the benefits of fiber is I spoke earlier about mast cells and, you know, how when they break down, they release histamine and that triggers the allergic response. So there's research coming out now that fibre can actually um, downregulate again, like P, that mast cell activation and degranulation. So it's going to help in um, allergic conditions. Okay. So that's really interesting. And there was another study done last year on dogs and they studied the effect in dogs with behavioural disorders of a commercial diet where one group just got like a standard commercial kibble. The second group got the same kibble. And it was, I don't know what the kibble was, but it was like 46% carb. So, you know, I'm like, oh, not a very good yeah, not a quality great kibble. So all they did to the treatment group was they added pomegranate, valerian, rosemary, lindenberries, hawthorn, and the amino acids L-theanine and L-tryptophan. So basically plant matter and some amino acids. So the purpose of the study was to... So they had 69 dogs with different behavioural disorders relating to anxiety and stress. And they did the study for 45 days and then they measured all these parameters. They measured serotonin and dopamine and endorphin, like beta endorphins, noradrenaline and cortisol, which are our stress, our dog's stress hormones, and reactive oxygen metabolites, you know, which are damaging to the body. And at the end of the study, just the addition, like even with a what I would say a poor quality kibble, at the end of the study, and it's only 45 days, significant difference between the two groups. So serotonin was um, significantly raised in the treatment group. Dopamine, so, you know, that motivating pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, significantly increased. Did I say serotonin increased? Yeah. Yep. And noradrenaline and cortisol, so the stress hormones were significantly and when I say significantly, I'm talking like statistically significantly decreased. I think the reactive oxygen species were also significantly decreased in the treatment group. So that's amazing. Like after, you know, less than two months, just adding some potent antioxidant sort of plant matter to the dog's diet had a huge, and the behavioral, I don't have it here, like the, but the behaviors changed as well. Like, yeah, because of the 
neurotransmitter and, you know, cortisol and things, you know, they, they weren't as anxious and things like that. So that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. So another reason to feed your dog yeah. some plant matter. Yeah. Like I said, for me, my dogs eat a kibble base. That's just what is practical within my life. But I also I supplement and every time I talk to you, I get a little bit more sort of excited about it. And both my dogs are adults now and they're not really training for food so much. So I am trying to feed more and more fresh raw. And so more, they're probably more of that than kibble at the moment. And I for sure notice a performance increase. Really, obviously, not only does my dog look better, but he performs better. Mm. And being performance dogs, like they, that's where it's really noticeable. Like I think for a lot of people, maybe you, you're just your average pet that's just rocking around living his best life. Mm. You're not expecting performance. And so he doesn't do anything that really allows you to see how much better he feels. Whereas a dog like that, like ours that are really at the, the peak of performance, like a 1% increase is huge. Like mm. I, I can notice that. And by the time it's observable in the dog's feeling, it's probably very profound, right? This is an interesting thing. It really is because there's more science out there and there's more knowledge widely available to support this now. Like the statistics are basically in on it and research is becoming more prevalent. People are actually putting money and interest behind it. However, if you look back 30 years ago when all this really didn't exist and there was no interest around it, the Greyhound people have always been doing this. So I know that there's some scorn in the Greyhound industry over the years, but there's also a lot to thank them for in response to nutrition and welfare for the way they raise their greyhounds. Like if you want to look at a dog in peak model of fitness, greyhound people have been killing it for years. Yeah. They're in the business of-, of They're in the of business of making their way. dogs extreme performance animals. Yeah. I mean, and when you look at a, at a racing greyhound, I mean, they are jacked, yeah. you know, but that's what they do. You know, their their whole lifestyle is about the concern and welfare of yeah. ra- raising their dog to be the best possible dog it can be. And they make their money in the one percenters. That's right. Like your dog being one percent better than yeah. the other mm. is a difference between a Like I know the issues. I know what people's issues are, but you can't ignore that side of it as yeah. well. Yeah. Yep. And uh, really important for senior dogs. So as dogs age, you know, those antioxidant rich substances, you know, berries and greens and things are really important. And studies have shown that it actually reduces cognitive decline in senior dogs, improves their behavior, you know, a whole a lot of good stuff as our dogs get older. Well, every time I'm trying to give the Frenchies berries, why are you always telling me not to give them too many? Yeah, not too many. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't want blue diarrhea. <laughs> I play hungry hippos with them every night. I get a handful of berries and throw them along the floor. They, <laughs> they go crazy for them. Hey, so while we're on that topic of just including some sort of plant matter and some other food other than kibble into the dog's diet, something that it might just be my understanding or, or you know, the exposure in the circles I was in, but people sort of, when I was a kid, the dog got all the leftovers, mm-hmm. right? And then that seemed to be kind of scorned, like you shouldn't be doing that. But I do it again now and I feel like my, it is, that's where my dogs are getting most of their sort of vegetable matter from mm-hmm. is because like it's cooked, it's ready to eat. I didn't eat it all. Here you go, have some. And am I an asshole or is- No, that's the best way to do it. Like yeah. I'm- I think it's – can I just say something on that? I kind of think that there's a lot of things that we should be doing that we're not because it's not in the best interest of some of the commercial agencies. Yeah, so that's what I'm sort of getting at because I feel like, of course, you've got your guides out there and for people who want to feed totally raw, like power to you, I'm with you, congratulations. But the truth is – and I had my rant about looking after your dog's health. Truth is that's just not on the cards for me to do that all the time and 
like travel schedule, moving around, blah, 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 right? Mm. It's just not practical for everybody. And I'm one of those people it's not practical for. But by just supplementing with, like, it's not hard, right? To just give them like, I cooked my dinner and here's a little bit extra of what I'm having. So long as it's not like bad for dog type stuff, here you go. Here's a little bit of it for you. And it's as simple as that, right? Like you don't have to overthink this shit. No, not if you're just supplementing an existing kibble diet. So, yeah. and look, some of the research um, in cancer in dogs, you know, they supplemented kibble diets, I think, three times a week and got significant improvements, like yeah. reduction rates in cancer in dogs. And I love things like berries. Obviously, you wouldn't, you know, you, you feed raw for maximum antioxidant benefit. But I always prefer to cook vegetables, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's broccoli or, you know, leafy greens, just lightly, you know, carrots are more, you know, a, a lot of nutrients are more bioavailable once they're cooked. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it is easy for the dogs to absorb. So I'm always giving like zucchini and broccoli off my plate. Yeah. Like I eat the protein and <laughs> give them, yeah. you know, bits of my vegetables. And I think that's great that you're doing that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just the really easy way of, of supplementing. And mm. I, like I said, I noticed a change and mm. like I, at the moment, because of, when I am home and, and neither of my dogs are working for food at the moment, I'm not teaching anything new. So it's easy for me to actually feed raw and, mm. or, or not a, a training based diet. Right. So it's easy to do, but even when I am, I can then just be like, Oh, here's a bit of my food. Mm. And it, it, it makes a difference. Every little bit helps. So yeah. Good that you raise that for people. Yeah. I just think like, you know, I know some people, there's probably three kinds of people listening to this. There's people who, who are like, yeah, Raw feeding, 100%. I was right all along. Fuck everybody else. <laughs> and then there's people who are like, what? Well, that's impossible for me. I'm feeding kibble. Fuck you. My dog gets everything else good. That's happening. And then I think there's the people in the middle that are just going to be like, oh, I can probably make things a little bit better. Mix and mash. Yeah. And yeah. I'm that guy in the middle yeah. there. I'm just well, like, oh, even okay. Rodney Habib, the first ever IACP that I went to where he was keynote, I think it was the one in St. Louis. And he said, for people who are already feeding kibble, who only just added like a handful of vegetables and berries to their kibble diet, he said there was already a significant improvement in the health and well-being of the pets. Yeah. Just by doing that, just mm. by adding a little bit of, you know, fiber and nutrition to the actual, to the diet. I know the kibble people are going to go crazy on that and say, what? You're saying there's no nutrition in, in kibble. But he was stating that just by doing that, it made a, it had a profound effect on their health and well-being. Yeah. And I think it's about choosing your battles. Like if your dog probably leading on to behavior and, and I know you've got a seminar coming up talking about exactly that, the effect of diet on behavior. Mm. But a lot of people who are then have these nerve bag wreck dogs and they tell me that, Oh, I can't do any of these training protocols because I feed raw. are like, well, all right. But you, like you could stop that for six weeks and fix this problem and then come back to it. Your dog's mm. not going to die in those six weeks. Now, of course it could be a case that like you're going to speak about that. It could be, Behavior could be because the dog's got a dietary mm. uh, problem, yeah. but if everything's in place and they won't give up how this dog's amazing diet, I'm like, okay, well, mate, that's not the problem. Or incorporate so, it into the training. Yeah, find a way to do it. But even if it means your dog eats rocks for six weeks, if you then fix his fucking behavioral mm. issue and he goes back to a normal life and then you put him back on the, the perfect balanced diet, then that's probably better for him than eating the best food possible and having to live in your fucking backyard forever because he can't go, he's too nervous to go anywhere, Mm. do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Rodney Habib. I was listening to him as well the other day and I love that he brought up the myth, he called it, of, you know, that 2%, 3% body, like feeding 2 or 3% of the dog's body weight, like how to determine the amount of food to feed. Mm -hmm. So in terms of feeding dogs, and I go into this in great depth in my guides, and I'll be talking a lot about this too in Melbourne at the seminar. 
but it has a place and it's really probably the most convenient approach for people to determine how much food to feed their dog, you know, day to day, you know, weekly and things like that. So if you've got a 50 kilo dog, it doesn't eat 10 times as much as a five kilo dog, Mm -hmm. which the 2% rule or, you know, 2.5-3% sort of dictates because it's not linear. So, you know, a small dog is much more metabolically active and Mm -hmm. needs more calories per, you know, body size than, than a bigger dog. And that doesn't take into account the activities that a dog is involved in anyway. Uh, there's a lot of other, yeah, yeah, compounding factors that need to be taken into account. But to give an example, so if I've got a 20 kilogram adult dog that's fairly inactive, I can calculate how much to feed that dog on a sort of a, a calorie basis based on its metabolic body weight. And there's a few different equations to do that. So when I do that, that dog might need about a thousand calories. If I work out how much to feed that dog on a percentage body weight, and I pick 2.5%, then that's about 500 grams of food. So determining calories is 1,000 calories. Determining percentage of body weight, it's about 500 grams of food. I've created lots of recipes, which are in my guides as well. So I've got a fully like complete and balanced recipe for a 20-kilogram dog that needs 1,000 calories a day, but that generates around 800 grams of food. So if I'm calculating percentage body weight, it's saying give that dog 500 grams, but if I'm basing on calories... And it depends on the ingredients you pick, and I'll, I'll give a really good example in a sec. That's 800 grams of food. So, you know, there's quite a discrepancy, and that can make a huge difference to your dog's body condition pretty quickly. Yeah. So let's just say I calculate that my dog needs, you know, my Frenchie needs 400 grams of food a day, and I do 95% ground beef, chicken wing with no skin, bit of liver and a bit of kidney, you know, to total 400 grams. That's going to give me around 500 calories. If still working on the 400 grams, I happen to buy 75% lean ground beef, the chicken wings got a bit of skin on it, kidney and liver are the same, but it still totals 400 grams, that's going to give me 1,000 calories. Mm. So it's 400 grams, but the lean version gives me 500 and the, the fatter version gives me 1,000. So that's- Massive difference. Huge difference. So if people, you know, my recommendation would be if people are feeding based on that percentage body weight- to always, always pick like the leanest cuts of meat that they can afford, you know, to give their dog. Because the higher the fat percentage, that fat is, and I think we touched on this a little bit Mm -hmm. previously, that fat is offsetting other nutrients that your dog needs. If your dog can only eat like a thousand calories without gaining weight, and most of that's fat, it's missing out on a lot of other nutrition that it needs without gaining weight. So- the percentage body weight calculation, it's its convenient because, you know, calculating calories for dog foods is really difficult because there's a lot of random foods that just aren't in like a calorie yep. software Chart. program. Yeah. Mm. So it has a place, but people need to be sensible about it. And yeah, the main thing, just pick lean meats. And it reminds me too of your coconut oil thing, you know. Yeah, it's a lot of fat in there. It's that. a lot of fat in that. So all of this, there's so much to it. It's dense. Yep. There's a lot. And there's so much that we still didn't cover today that, you know, I know your listeners would love to hear about. Yeah, I'm like, what, at like your- what are you thinking about for the next podcast? So what I would love to talk about with you all is kibble and yep. just, you know, really what, like the process of how kibble's made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that, like, I've been on such a journey, like a learning journey about all things like kibble and raw over the last couple of years. And some days I'm just like, oh, I wish I didn't know that. Like, I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could unknow that. Because, you know, once you know, you, I feel compelled to, like, so with kibble, I'm like, I personally can't 
bring myself to feed many kibbles now that I know how it's made and what's in them. Okay. And when I look at kibble labels, oh, I just cringe. And I'm, so I'd love to talk to the listeners about what to look for in a pet food label, what's good, what's bad, what you should run from, how kibble's made, and just so increase that awareness of what you're actually giving your dog when you choose to feed kibble. And I do understand, and I've been a kibble feeder most of my life until recently with, with our dogs. And yeah, just more about the actual commercial foods and how to understand a guaranteed analysis and compare products that, you know, may not be so apples and apples initially, like knowing what to do, how to calculate carbohydrate content, because that's not on a commercial label and just the quality of the ingredients and the order of the ingredients and all of those things. So yeah, we'll have to get back together and okay, because that, that will take, you know, a good chunk of time too to get through that. Yep. Okay. But I, I think it's important, like it, a lot of this is over my head and like I've sort of talked about it, it hasn't drastically changed. It's not like I went from being a kibble feeder to like, okay, stop, I'm going full raw. But I think that, as I say, the more you know, the better. And, and I, like I really personally, uh, I truly believe, I've been thinking a lot about that consent podcast that we did. And, mm. and it's, it's about, I really think that that is about making informed decisions for your dog. And like I said, there's times when I decide like I will, I will feed you fucking other dog shit if it is going to fix another problem. Your health will come back to later. This mm. is going to fix whatever. And so it's about knowing how to do that, how to create that balance. It right? provokes oh. critical thinking, right? Like yeah. That, and I guess that's the whole point of what we're trying to do is get people thinking about things more intrinsically. Yeah. And look, I'm not even – I'm – you know, I don't love kibble anymore, but when Randy went in the kennels, I'm like, well, he can have kibble for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's not going to kill him. Um, and, you know, get him back on track when he gets back. So how do people get more of this? You guys are doing You guys are doing a seminar together. We are. Yeah. It's like the first like joint cook seminar, which is in Melbourne. Mm. What, what are you doing? What are you covering? I'll be talking on the Saturday about all things nutrition. So I will be covering, I'm going to start by covering just the basics, you know, so we're on the same page of terminology mainly. So when- People talk carbohydrates, you know, the difference between, you know, people use fiber and starch interchangeably, okay. but they're different, yep. understanding the different proteins, that. So just initially getting everyone on, at that same level of yep. nutrition, then going into the effective diet on behavior. So we're going to a lot of that in terms of what they're feeding their dogs. We're going to spend a lot of time on the commercial pet foods and how to interpret the labels and what to look for and how to do the, the calculations yourself. Cool. And if people want to. So I've selected just some random kibble labels that I'll run through in the seminar. But if people are feeding a kibble and they want me to analyze that kibble and talk about that kibble Bring the on the day, well, just send me the details of the brand and then I can cover that. So it just makes it more relevant okay. to everyone if I'm actually talking about their dog foods rather than the ones that I've just yeah, you know, cool. picked. So I've picked a range of really terrible to premium. But um, yeah, so send that information to me if you're attending the seminar. I'm going to talk about fresh food feeding, you know, how to get started, how to calculate everything, how to transition to it, you know, the pitfalls and, you know, what to look for. What's your target? You Most people that are going to be there are going to be dog professionals or everything from pet dog owners to- yeah, Everyone in between. Okay, perfect. Mm. Yeah, so which makes it tricky to- Yeah, but you're starting yeah. at the start. You're starting with definitions. Yeah. What is a carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I've got time, I'd love to talk about nutrition for senior dogs and working dogs. Cool. Because that's really interesting. And again, depending on time, because I want people, I want it to be really interactive. So, you know, people have a lot of questions when it comes to health and yeah. nutrition. So I want, you know, people to take away 
what they need to take away. Mm -hmm. Because I'm covering such a broad audience, can't target everyone directly. So there will be a lot of question time. And um, allergies, you know, food allergies, sensitivity, like the difference between an allergy, a sensitivity and intolerance and yep. treatment approaches. So I'm going to talk about products I use, dietary strategies I use with my dog clients and things like that. So it's going to be a full on day. It's going to be packed with information. And if you haven't booked in, you need to. Do it. I think there's a lot of value in even just knowing the right language to use so that when you do have a, a problem with your dog, you have an illness with your dog. You know, when you visit the medical professional and you go see the the nutritionist or the vet or whatever, and you can go in there and you can say, this is where I'm at, and mm. you can give an accurate, this is what I feed, this is the breakdown, uh, and and be like, oh, I feed him a bunch of potatoes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's when you can use the right terminology. You can be part of the conversation rather than just yeah. being led. And the kickoff yeah. point is much more along, you know, like the, mm. the, the truth of every professional is they're working on the clock. So when you go to see the vet, you've booked a 15 minute appointment. If he, he doesn't have time to spend the first nine minutes explaining to you what the definitions are. Mm. So you, you get left behind and they don't bother explaining. If you go in there and say, I've been feeding this, this is the ratios of carbohydrates, fats, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Then you're, you're gonna, ascending along the line. Yeah, and mm. you're going to set him up for success, yep. him or her up for success mm. in yep. knowing exactly Agreed. where to go. But also then you're a lot more involved in the treatment plan because they go, oh, okay, you're a person who can handle this information, right? Mm. So it's definitely worth – I think it's a great idea. I think it's definitely worthwhile everybody coming along to it and getting that information. Yeah. So um, that's me on the Saturday and then it'll be over to Glenn for the Sunday. Yep, which I'm working on the holistic side of aggression. So we're looking at it from – the evolutionary point of puppies right through to selecting a dog from a rescue organisation and even using better definitions like we learned from our close personal friend, Dr. Roger Brantes. Yeah. We've got a lot of shit going on. Like we've got a hundredth episode coming up really soon. Yeah. Like we've got a really big Well, this will probably be after. This will probably- This will be after that. Yeah. Th so it's not coming up, Glenn. It's happened. <laughs> It's happened. Yeah. Sorry, you're you in the future. You silly man. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's wrap it up. Hey, girl, thanks for coming in and giving us a bunch of your time in Thank your you. own home Yeah, here. thanks for walking into the room. Now I have to go cook everyone dinner, do I? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, but I want an exact ratio of- Yeah, uh, we want a breakdown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. A nutritional I'm a, panel. I'm in a bulking phase. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> By bulking, I mean getting fat. No, honestly, thank you very much for making the time. I think that it's really, it's very interesting. I, I love talking about this kind of stuff. Like you say, I have, I have exactly the wrong amount of knowledge in this kind of thing. I feel like I have just enough to be, to make a lot of big mistakes. <laughs> to be dangerous. <laughs> to be dangerous. Can, can I just add a point? Because after a few of your episodes, like people have sent me messages complimentary to say, you know, wow, Norell is really smart. And yes, you are. You're really smart, but you work really hard to become very smart. Like the time and the hours that you put into doing this it didn't it doesn't happen by accident it's not Narelle is just you know a brainiac that's gifted she works fucking hard to put together this material and continues to do so like even for this seminar that we're putting on down in Melbourne I mean she's been chained to her computer night after night researching and pulling up material so she's not just going in there blind and just going to wing it you know like she's reading up-to-date material that is relevant to the topics that people want to know about. So not uh, like this guy just gets up and shoots from the hip. That's it. <laughs> I know. I'm waiting to see you chained to your computer. I've been reading every night. I I've know. got my books out. <laughs> just joking. I've been reading Lindsay. I've been reading. Oh, well, for the record, I was talking about myself. I was, I was, I was talking about me. No, you, you are a good researcher. You are uh, a very good researcher. No, but I mean presenting shoot mm. from the hip. Anyway, hey, let's wrap it up. We'll talk forever. Yeah. Uh, where, where do people buy tickets to that thing? 
K-Frost and Shane Manker through Canine Resolutions. Okay. So that's the uh, the best place to look for it. And we can put a link up. Yeah, so post a link somewhere. Post a link, yeah. But it's uh, Canine Resolutions and it's in Melbourne, 9th and 10th of November. All right, cool. Hey, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Also, maybe just send me a review of my own services because I'm building a, a, my website out. So I need some testimonials and so forth. Uh, anyway. Just a little plug for myself. <laughs> what a man whore. Yeah. <laughs> I got in, that's a story for another day. And uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to that episode that Narelle's been referencing many times. Ten bucks gets you a live Q&A. Twenty bucks gets you love and affection. And if you wanted to buy me a Lamborghini, you could do that also. What about me? What do I just get a fucking packet of crisps? You can sit in the passenger seat of mine. Nice. Uh, And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is uh, via email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com.